Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. For the Federal Reserve, then, the White House announcing plans to nominate PIMCO's Rich Clarida as the vice chair of the Federal Reserve and filling the final piece in the Fed's three most powerful spots, Yellen Fisher and Dudley out and Powell Clarida Williams in. After all the concerns and conversations about the changes the new administration would make to the U.S. Central Bank, the new Fed looks a whole lot like... The old Fed. Harm Banhold, Zuni Credit Chief U.S. Economist, joins us now. And Harm, it was a concern about a year ago about what this Federal Reserve would look like. And you'd have to say not much change. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's um, we have seen pretty, pretty good um, choices. Um, there has been... A year ago, there was a concern that the whole Fed may be totally revamped after after several comments from the administration. Um, then the next concern was we have a new Fed chair who lacks this formal economics degree. But I think all these concerns have been addressed by adding two very strong you know, vice chairs with, with John Williams and Rich Clarida. So I think this new inner circle of the Fed... Um, is, is, is a pretty solid group. They're fine choices, not quite the heavyweights of Janet Yellen and Stanley Fisher, but really fine choices. And it's testament to the institution, isn't it, that this administration has taken these picks so seriously harm. These yes, are really I, quite good picks. I, I, I totally I totally agree, yes. And, and, and the market, I mean, there was not much market reaction yesterday to Rich Clarida's um, in, intended to the intended nomination of, yeah. of, of Rich Clara. I don't think it has formally happened yet. But um, I mean, first of all, he, it wa- he was a front runner for that position for some time. He was rumored to be the front runner. But but yeah, as I said, also o- over the last several months, the market has the, the notion in the market has settled that uh, that the Fed will remain the Fed and will continue to do what it did under the previous um, leadership. So harm no policy shift at least not imminently, as the Federal Reserve, the old guard, hands it over to the new guard. Has the reaction function of this Federal Reserve with these new names, has that shifted in any way, shape or form as far as you're concerned? Um, Well, the reaction function has shifted a little bit over the last several years, I would say, most importantly because um, there's the view that the the equilibrium exchange rate, the infamous, uh, sorry, equilibrium interest rate, the, the R star, is lower, right? That That change has happened over the last several years. John Williams was one of the main architects, intellectual architects behind that shift. And yeah. Rich Clarida, he totally agrees with that view. So that's very helpful. So there's no additional change on top of the change that we've seen over the last several years. So that means more consistency, steady as she goes, uh, lower long-term interest rates. Are you prepared for the, the central bank independence to be tested? That was another remaining question coming into this new administration, and, and bear in mind, it wasn't so long ago we were really talking about radical changes to the Federal Reserve. And so far, these are really quite consensual kind of replacements for the for the spots that were available on the Federal Reserve. But do you see at some point the independence of this institution being tested? No, I... Th- well, you should never say never, but but I think it was a big litmus test how this reshuffling of the Fed with all these empty seats will play out. And I think it, we should... Everybody should be encouraged by by these picks, and and I think it 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 is a testament to the independence, to the strong institution um, that the Fed is. What will determine the certitude of three or four rate hikes? Whether it becomes three, becomes four, they become five, which very few people are talking about. 
or they cut back from four to three, et cetera, et cetera. It, what, what's the, the thing, the distinction that will make that decision happen? Well, I think it's a usual suspect. Um, it, big drops in the stock market is, on, on the negative side would, you know, would mean tighter financial conditions and the Fed has in the past reacted and I think the new leadership will do the same. So that would mean less rate hikes. Um, much slower growth than anticipated, meaning even in an even smaller multiplier from all the fiscal stimulus mm -hmm. may also mean that we're ending up with two or three rather than three or four. And on the upside, um, maybe an overshoot on the inflation side may bring us to four or five. That said, I think the threshold to change the outlook for three or four hikes on both sides, on the upside and on the downside, is pretty high. And and, and frankly, I mean, while I have four rate hikes uh, in our forecast for this yeah. year, I have a very hard time to see the Fed going to five. Almost, in, okay. it, it, it's, a, yeah. it's very hard to imagine the scenario where the Fed would go five I, times this year. I just brought that up for conversation on Tuesday. <laughs> but the basic, the basic idea here is does that marginal second, then third, then fourth rate hike, do they begin to really impinge on business process? Or is it all overwhelmed by make America uh, great again GDP? Well, certainly the... There's been talk about the, the LIBOR rate, right, which 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 has gone up. Might have, people say this is the equivalent of, of another rate hike. But overall, I think that what the Fed is looking at, how, how the Fed sees things is they raise rates and then they look at how financial conditions change because that is how short-term monetary policy affects the real economy, right? And that is through credit spreads, longer-term interest rates, maybe yeah. the exchange rate, maybe stocks. And that is all relatively easy. Right? What, did, what did you make of the tweet? from yesterday, from the president on foreign exchange. Russia and China playing the currency devaluation Eric Nielsen, game right? <laughs> as the U.S. keeps raising interest rates. Not acceptable. What did you make of that harm? Who was that aimed at? Who was the audience? Um, um. Serious question. I'm wondering whether it's aimed at the Federal Reserve. No. Is it aimed at the FX market? No, I is he putting well, the FX market on notice? Does no, he want think, a weaker dollar? No, I think, I think the audience is always the same, right? It's the... the people he's addressing with, the president is addressing with most of his tweets. I mean, on a serious note, we know that China is not manipulating its currency, I don't want to say at all anymore, but much less than it did. And the latest PBOC actions over the last year or so was actually to prevent a weakening of its own currency. You know, so that, and if you look at the Chinese overall current account balance, yeah, they have a surplus, but it's not huge. So bottom line is the Chinese currency is not that much... Um, out of think um, with, with where it should be. So I, I think it's totally misplaced. And I think it also, it, it does a disservice to him, to, to the official line of argumentation from the administration, because the focus should not be on exchange rates or anything yeah. um, monetary, if you want. It should be on these non-tariffal barriers to trade, including intellectual property rights. I, I think that should be the focus. I think it's a legitimate concern. Um, but now bringing it back to the exchange rate or something, it's, uh, I think it's a total wrong direction. Armbindles, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated uh, this morning. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. It is a price of two martinis for an annual uh, subscription. And it is Foreign Affairs Magazine. The font is large for those sight-impaired like myself. But far more importantly, it is smart, smart, smart. Well-timed here.
Is Democracy Dying? A global report. We uh, are advantaged by having Gideon Rose with us, a foreign affairs magazine. Why that cover? Why is democracy dying? Because right now there clearly is a resurgence of authoritarianism in lots of parts of the world. China, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, elsewhere. Uh, and there are also uh, lots of problems in major advanced industrial democracies uh, in Europe, in America. And so uh, we did a survey essentially of just how bad things are. And the answer is pretty darn bad. Uh, there's no question this is the worst period for democracy in decades. Uh, and people disagree, legitimate, serious scholars and analysts uh, of all stripes disagree about whether this is sort of a permanent shift against democracy down the right. road or whether it's something that's just a temporary lull before things can right themselves and get back on track. It's a global report, Elizabeth Economy on China. You've got a wonderful chapter on the Crown Prince's charm offensive with Saudi Arabia and such. Which chapter sticks out to Gideon Rose? Um, you know, there's a... Uh, I'm really worried about what's happening in Eastern Europe because I don't I'm understand... Hungry. In Hungary, and, 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 and not just Hungary, basically uh, countries that should be embracing their new European identity and the virtues of being part of the EU uh, and the, the, the opportunity they've been given, like Poland, have sort of, and even the ones like Poland that have made their uh, uh, best foot forward in the new situation uh, are rejecting the, the transplant to modernity in the West, taking things they, they want and leaving the rest behind and, and not moving forward in the way that we thought uh, liberal democracy and international cooperation yeah. should work. And so that scares me. But, but basically, you know, the optimistic side of things, we have a whole package on CRISPR and gene editing with uh, Bill Gates and Jennifer Doudna, who might win a Nobel Prize for this down the road and others. And although there are dangers and worries about regulation, there are also upsides of the wonderful advances in medical technology and uh, agricultural technology that are going to happen. And so while all this political turbulence is swirling around us, um, there's also this world of science and technology and development that's going on as well. And so the challenge right now is how to keep your intellectual and practical and financial grounding in what the Chinese called interesting times. So Gideon, let me just be clear about something. Do you think democracy is dying or you were just unhappy with the outcomes of democracy? No, the, the, uh, it's not just a question of the outcomes. What you're seeing in places like the United States right now uh, are classic signs of what we call democratic regression, centralization of power in the executive, uh, politicization of the judiciary, using it to go after your political opponents, um, attacks on an independent media, not because of what they, uh, the factual truth of what they say, but because of the political valence of it. Um, things like that, uh, use of public office for private games. These things are very common in a lot of places around the world. Uh, Fareed Zakaria has called them illiberal democracies. Um, we just didn't think that was going to be true in places like the United States. And what you see right now, you know, as a Latin American friend put it to me, um, the, the sad thing about this is we've seen this movie before, just never in English. Um, and so the real question now is, is this a temporary regression yeah. uh, or is it going to go back to uh, to normal or are things going to get better when people realize just how low they've gotten? Well, Gideon, they're all valid, valid concerns, but they are outcomes of democracy. And I assume that the next time there's an election, that the, the electorate gets the chance to put it right if they want to. We hope. And we isn't, hope. Isn't that democracy? Yeah. Yes. And that is, in fact, exactly right. And the, the real question now is, will we get through? 
then for, for the United States, there's absolutely no question in my mind that the major question is, will you get through the next seven months in which the legal and political processes of democratic institutions are allowed to take mm -hmm. their natural course? And I think they will. And I think in the long run, we'll sort of like uh, 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 basically say, ha, 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 who worried right. about that? But, but we'll know that in seven months because there's a real chance you could have a domestic constitutional crisis or an international uh, security crisis specifically designed simply to derail the otherwise legitimate playing out of well, those institutional processes. And that's what scares me the most. You start with the optimism of Walter Russell Mead, how American democracy fails its way to success. It's a wonderful issue. I really can't say enough about foreign affairs. Is democracy dying? Gideon Rose with us uh, today with a wonderful set of essays, including on China, the must-read on China Neil Shearing is with Capital Economics, looking at the economics of EM and their interdependencies. Neil, the interdependencies of a Chinese-U.S. tit-for-tat, what's it mean to Indonesia? What's it mean for the Czech Republic? That's a, that's a key question that we need to, to think about, because what's happened in the global economy over the past 20 years has been that China's become this manufacturing hub with spokes spreading out all over East Asia and all the way into to Europe even. So if there's a trade spat between the US and China, that's going to trickle down through supply chains and hit other EMs. So particularly Taiwan, also Korea, mainly in East Asia. But as you say, it goes much beyond that as well. Looking at the uh, the story within China at the moment, Neil, the economy seems to be this tug of war between the old economy and the new economy. And you see that in the data this morning, retail sales versus, say, industrial production. How are they managing that transition from the old engines of growth to the new engines of growth, Neil? It's a difficult transition, and it's one that's going to take place over a matter of years and decades rather than months and quarters, I think. What we see in the data today, I mean, take the official data at face value, the economy is remarkably stable. Uh, actually, in our view, the economy is already slowing. We have our own activity proxy. That puts growth at about 4.8%, not 6.8%, 4.8%, um, so sub substantially lower than, than the official data. And it's on a declining trend. And that part of that is industrial weakness, the effect of uh, pollution controls that were put in place over the winter. Uh, but there's also, as you say, this more fundamental weakness in fixed investment that reflects uh, the, the, the deeper transition that needs to happen over the next decade or so. And Neil, on the on the triple R rate at the uh, the Chinese Central Bank, the reserve requirement ratio, a full one percentage point cut, a 100 basis point cut to that this morning. Neil, what are they trying to address with that kind of action? And how are they easing that transition by doing it? I think there's several things they're trying to do here. They're playing a very difficult balancing game, uh, balancing out the, the Chinese uh, People's Bank. Uh, on the one hand, they've got one eye on the currency. The Fed's tightening. Uh, they're, they're raising the, the, one of the policy rates, albeit one that doesn't necessarily have any impact on, uh, uh, on monetary conditions. On the other hand, uh, they, they, they have a kind of one eye on the fact that credit conditions in the real economy are tightening, and that's what this uh, reserve uh, ratio cut this morning is, is aimed at, trying to ease back on some of the um, uh, ease credit conditions in the real economy, try and get some of those engines of growth going again. So this is it's percolating, uh, uh, certainly in the last, oh, five, six, eight weeks, which is about slowdown. I mean, I guess we had nascent boom and 
a pretty good, you know, better than good global economy. Is a is the shock of the world economic outlook out today by the IMF going to be a little bit of uh, not recession or gloom or depression, but just a slowdown in the too good to be true global economy? I think that's right. I mean, I've been in this game for long enough now that when you get uh, almost unanimity amongst economists at the turn of the year that we're in this synchronized global upswing, you knew it was too good to be true. Uh, And to my mind, that signaled the the peak uh, of growth in this cycle. Um, Now, I think that's uneven at this stage. Um, As I say, growth in the EM world, at least to the extent there's been a slowdown that's been led by China uh, and growth elsewhere in Latin America still seems to be picking up, for example. Uh, The real shock in all of this is that the European economy seems to have lost some steam over the last uh, couple of months or so. And that was the part of the world that was much uh, earlier in the growth recovery. Wouldn't be that that much of a shock to see the U.S. slowing right now. But Europe slowing right now, I think, is is a surprise. And and John Farrell, uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard of The Telegraph, with a very cogent essay with the R word on Germany, recession. Not predicting it, not predicting it, but as, as Neil says... Uh, some of the precursors are there for real slowdown in Europe. And the backdrop to all of this, Neil, at the moment is trade concerns, tension between China and the United States, and the president injecting some concern around the FX market as well. Not the first time he's done it, referring to uh, China and Russia as playing the devaluation game. The Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, in an interview with CNBC earlier this morning, saying that the president's currency comment was a warning shot to Russia and China. What's your read on that, Neil? And how difficult is it to read what the ultimate policy of this White House is when just a couple of days ago the Treasury said that China was not a currency manipulator, then a couple of days later the President says they are? Well, exactly. It's extremely difficult. and It's extremely difficult for market practitioners to to get their head around what's going on. I think there's a particular irony in the case of singling out Russia, because, of course, the reason the ruble has weakened, um, the the devaluation that that the president talks about is is because the U.S. has placed sanctions on the country. Um, So actually, this is not about Moscow intervening in the foreign exchange market. This is about uh, the effect of sanctions and and the impact that's had on the currency. But look, the the Treasury report that came out earlier uh, at the back end of last week, I think actually was a bit more timid than than certainly I had expected and some people in the market had expected. They could have made a plausible case for singling out countries like Korea, uh, for Thailand, Taiwan, and and they stepped back a bit from doing that. What do you say about a headline from Mr. Mnuchin's interview? Trump only considers re-entering TPP on better terms. Why should any Asian EM that you look at, Neil, go to the United States, quote-unquote, on better terms? I find that illogical. It, it, the short point is it won't, uh, and, and that won't happen. Uh, now, there might be some uh, cosmetic changes that can be um, that can be made to to, you know, to coax the U.S. back in, as it were. Um, but I think what's happened in the U.S. at least, or the U.S. part at least, is that this realization that actually the TPP, the bedrock of the TPP, this kind of idea of the T, idea of the TPP was to kind of almost form a bulwark against China in trade terms. You know, get get allied countries like Japan, Korea, and uh, the Pacific nations on board. Uh, press back against China. I think only now has there been a gradual realization that that, that was the, the aim and hence the, the, perhaps the, the reappraisal in, in Washington. So is this a stick for the Chinese, that the threat of joining TPP, if it is a threat, Neil, could it be? And could it be a stick to say to the Chinese, look, play ball, give us a better deal, or we're going to revisit TPP and um, put a strong foot 
foothold in that region, economically speaking? It could be. I mean, I think the, the U.S. has other ways in which it can push back and, and will continue to push back. Uh, the use of Section 301, the use of Section 223, the national defense um, arguments. I think that there's, there's a wide range, despite the fact that Congress has, at least according to the Constitution, um, responsibility for, for regulating commerce with foreign partners. There's a wide range of powers the president can draw upon. So I don't think it necessarily needs to, the, Washington needs to fall back on the threat of TPP. Uh, but it's certainly everything's going into the mix now. And I think at the moment that the big question is, is this a phony <coughs> war that we're seeing? At the moment, all we've seen is a list of tariffs, potential tariffs. Nothing's actually really changed. Um, or will both sides yeah. follow through? And if they do, then, then, oh, on, then that's obviously a game but, changer. But the news, just very quickly, or the news out of that Chinese technology company, that's not a phony war. A U.S. company can't deal with this tech-savvy telecom company out of China anywhere in the world. I believe that's what I read. It's not. And obviously, that, that has ramifications for that, the, that, that company and, and, and any company that, that deals with it. But in a macroeconomic sense, when you're dealing with the two largest economies in the world, commerce between trade between those countries totaling hundreds of billions of dollars each year, that is, is a drop in the ocean. So yeah. it's, mm -hmm. to my mind, it's, do, do we see, you know, if we start to see tariffs on $150 billion worth of Chinese exports to the US, uh, then that's a much bigger deal. Neil Shearing, Capital Economics Chief Emerging Markets Economist. What a joy this is to have Tim O'Brien with us uh, doing all of our good work at Bloomberg View. Bloomberg Gadfly with a lot of good announcements coming up as they move forward uh, at Bloomberg. Tim O'Brien now for a lengthy discussion on many themes. And yes, we'll do all this stuff going on with Washington. Uh, Tim, it is tax day. President Trump short tweets today. Employment is up. Taxes down. Enjoy. Talks about Mr. Abe, talks about Mr. Brown and the border, Governor Brown and the border. So many people are seeing the benefits of the tax cut bill. Everyone is talking. Really nice to see. Do we know yet, Tim O'Brien, how many Americans have their taxes go up due a year from now? I, I think there's still a long lag time in a lot of this. You know, I think one of the tricky things now with assessing any of this macro stuff is to a certain extent, President Trump is laying claim to a, a job market that, that preceded him that was already healing before he came into office. So I think he needs a couple more years in office before he can lay full claim mm -hmm. uh, to, to a rebound or, or to a Trump effect on the job market. But certainly, at least what we're seeing already in the data on tax cuts is a big portion of it right now is accruing to stock buybacks. It's not going into, I think, two key things that Republicans need to sell at the midterms, which is long-term wage growth for middle-income workers and uh, real investments in plant and equipment by corporations. When, when we look at this, and you know, I give credit, I'll say to the New York Times and their graphics of the number of people that would benefit from a tax cut, everybody's taking a collective victory lap on it, it seems like right now. Do you, in, in the study, particularly Bloomberg Gadfly, in, in the think tanks in Washington, do we know when those benefits end the tax cut? Obviously, there's going to be a good feeling for a bunch of hitters, uh, in full disclosure, including myself, for Me 12 too. months. Me too. But when when does it 
when's the benefit end? When's the free well, lunch? You know, there is end? no free lunch. So there it is. There is <clears> never <throat> a free lunch. The math ultimately on this isn't complicated at the end of the day. It says the government collect enough revenue to balance its books and just pay its bills. And I think, you know, we've recently had a big CDO study out that by 2020, the, the deficit's going to hit $1 trillion. Uh, what do we do when that when that rolls around? What happens to the bond market when that rolls around? What's going to happen to inflation rates when that rolls around? There's a certain amount of, I think, concern here that this tax cut is going to have a nice effervescent champagne-like right short-term now. pop. Yeah. And, and everybody's going to have a hangover later. And the CBO report buried you last week and all the news that you follow so much. With, with your classic book, Trump Nation, and all that you went through off of that book, how has that book aged in the last year? When you go back and look at the citizen Trump versus what we've seen, how has the book aged? I, you know, I think the book, one of the, the magical things about President Trump is that he is uh, predictable in his unpredictableness. And he really hasn't changed much since he was about 20. You know, he really is who he is. He is who you see. The thing, He's a survivor. Uh, you can really understand him through mm -hmm. two lenses, either self-preservation or self-aggrandizement. That really hasn't changed uh, for a very long time. My book came out in 2005. Um, I think the portrait of him that, that is in that book is, 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 is pretty accurate. Within that is the phrase that's in the zeitgeist right now that, you know, person A, person B, person C is going to have their day at court or justice is going to be had. And all the focus now, again, is on Kimba Wood, who's one of our federal judges. Al D'Amato is the one that recommended her uh, to President Reagan to the bench. And Kimba Wood, for me, will forever be younger. And she's, you know, a senior judge uh, now, out of Connecticut College, out of Harvard Law, with some notorious cases along the way. She really took charge yesterday in that courtroom. I think people, uh, the sophisticates, seem to be surprised by that as well. Right. She had two things she had to look at, which was uh, both the White House and uh, Michael Cohn's lawyers said that the documents that the FBI got, FBI got when they raided Mr. Cohn's office, he's, he's Trump's personal attorney, uh, should be subject to a review before prosecutors could do anything with them. Uh, that's an interesting issue because prosecutors didn't go into Cohn's office uh, through a subpoena. They issued a search warrant and went in there and took the documents they wanted because they believed they may not get them otherwise. Uh, and they asked a court for the right to do that, which meant the court believed they had good reason to go in there. Kimball Wood had to say, okay, ex post facto, are, does the court need to look at this again and intercede? And, and what she said was prosecutors can go ahead and, and take a look at these, but she's considering uh, putting a special master in uh, who will review the documents on behalf of both sides to make sure the process is fair. The second, and I think seminal thing that happened, right. of course, is that um, she said that the White House couldn't intervene. Your thrust in all this is the media is focused on the sensationalism. We saw that with um, the, the, the camera horde yesterday at the court. If that's not the case, what is Tim O'Brien focused on? Well, I think, you know, on our best days, we should stay focused on the fact pattern. I think there's a lot of wish fulfillment um, on both sides, a partisan wish fulfillment around how Trump is looked at and covered. And I think particularly when it pertains to the Mueller investigation, 
Trump's critics, I think, are prone to see every break in the case as the the final moment. You These, see, like boom, boom, or wow, this you is know, it. that whole thing, right? Yeah. And 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 Trump <clears throat> supporters will see every moment of the Mueller investigation as prosecutorial overreach. I think all we need to do on a day to day basis is hear the facts. I think, you know, I wrote recently around some of the writing about Michael Cohn certainly had this notion that he was the man in the Trump organization making most of the legal decisions and with knowledge of every single deal Trump has done that could get him in trouble with Mueller. And that's just not the case. You know, McCone was a hanger on. He certainly is, presents a vulnerability to Trump and he knows about a lot of deal, deals. But there were other people in the Trump organization who were there much longer who know more. Would we have had the events yesterday in front of Judge Wood if we didn't have a president tweeting so much? That's a great question, Tom. I think it's independent of the tweets. I think we would have had this in front of in front of Wood because the president's personal attorney uh, appears mm. to have engaged in a number of frauds. The prosecutors are interesting in probing, interested in probing. I think that stands apart from the right. tweets. But there's no question also that going back to the to the election, uh, the president incented the judiciary, uh, I think, to look closely at his actions because he took on judges. And, and he routinely yeah. criticized the courts. Tell know. us about the prosecutors. I read about Mr. Kazami, I believe it is, with an SEC background. And well, do you remember guys, him from, from the 08 crisis? Yeah, yeah. And these guys are, are grizzled, grizzled. I mean, it's it's in the, the FBI book, The Threat Matrix, as well. The Southern District is is a really serious set of, of prosecutors, using that word very Narrowly, aren't they? And and they're highly independent, and they pride and what do you themselves, mean by that? Meaning that they don't see themselves as having to take guidance from the Justice Department in Washington. How do they get away with it? Because they're in the financial capital of the world. They believe they bring an extra layer of financial. And they're allowed to. And they're allowed to. It's you know we know this in media. There's always these Washington bureaus that are very independent from the motherships for the same. Oh really? Reason. Yeah. I didn't know that. You didn't know about that. <laughs> The other thing on the Southern District is I have a little bit of personal experience in here because Kozami and some of the other people there uh, worked uh, for uh, Mary Jo White when she ran the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District. And Mary Jo White represented me in my litigation with, with Trump. Mm -hmm. And um, Mark Kasowitz represented Trump at the time. And Mary Jo and her team completely stripped the bark off these folks. And I think it's in part because okay. they come out of that strong Southern District tradition. Are we going into a stripping of the bark yes. stage here? Yes. Discuss that for 30 seconds. Uh, we'll come back. Trump has not appointed a new head of his own legal team. So he's at sea legally and he is surrounded by the most well-heeled and, and talented group of federal prosecutors under Bob Mueller that's ever taken a look at the White House. And he's now got another foot in New York, which he can't control in any way with the Southern District. He's got, it's a pincer. This is going to be wonderful. Tim O'Brien able to uh, be with us today for a generous amount of time. We're going to come back with Pim Fox and uh, really dive into this. And also uh, look forward maybe to Tim O'Brien's thoughts on the new media as well as he is part of that with Bloomberg View, Bloomberg Gadfly, and Bloomberg Opinion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.